Hello, hello, hello. My name is Andrew, and I would like to welcome you to this week's episode of The Bible Less Traveled. For those just joining us, this is a podcast where we're on a journey into the text that's a little different than what most are used to. We'll be doing pretty normal things like reading texts from the Bible, analyzing them, interpreting them, and trying to apply them to today, but we'll be doing so from a decidedly unfundamentalist perspective. This week is exciting for me because it's the start of an arc of podcasts where I'll be tackling some myths about the Bible. It should be some good fun, so let's dive right in. The myth for this week is one that is probably familiar to many of us. You have to understand the Bible literally. I'll say that one more time, just so we're clear. You have to understand the Bible literally. There are a few other permutations of this myth, such as the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. Or you just have to read the Bible, then you'll understand. And I'm sure that some of you can come up with a few other permutations in the comments. The main assumption in this myth for there are quite a few, is that the Bible's easy to understand if you just take it at its plain text meaning. The problem is that the Bible is actually very complex, something we'll talk about more in depth next time, and that it also includes innuendos, jokes, and other things like that, that if taken literally, would literally be missing the point. Some examples of this would include poetry, parables, apocalyptic literature, myth, and some of the pieces of wisdom literature, to name a few. Now, I can hear some of you saying, but Andrew, I obviously I can see that all passages can't be read literally, but isn't that what people have kind of done for most of the history of the text? That's an excellent question. And actually, one of the biggest assumptions about the Bible whether you are a strong proponent and defender of it or a critic, uh, is the assumption that the literal reading of the text is the most important and the most prevalent in terms of history. The answer, interestingly enough, is no. Insisting on the literal, in, uh, on the literal reading of the Bible is a relatively new emphasis, popping up in the last... 150 to 300 years. Fascinating, right? Not that it didn't happen before then, but that it's been being emphasized as the only way to read the Bible, or even as the preferred way, is largely foreign to the many centuries that the text has been around. This myth finds its roots in the Renaissance, in the 1500s, and the slow growth of scientific advancement in Christian, Christian Europe. I put quotes around that, don't worry. You might uh, think of the story of Galileo and his trial for heresy for going against scripture and saying that the earth orbits the sun instead of the sun orbiting the earth. The Renaissance also saw a rediscovery of reading the text in its original languages instead of Latin, 
which led to intensified debates over its meaning and whether the official interpretations of the Roman Catholic Church were legitimate, which led to new translations of the text into the common tongues of Europe I, uh, um, via uh, gentlemen like Luther and Wycliffe, um, which led to everyone being able to read and come up with an interpretation of their own and grouping with people who had like interpretations as them. You'll have to excuse me as I condense a lot of history into a tiny space. Glossing is inevitable, um, and all of these issues are impossibly more complex than I have portrayed them. An interesting point, however, is that uh, what's happening here is not so much a debate about the Bible, as it is a shift in worldview. Before this point, the worldview of the writers of Scripture was largely shared by people Europe over <laughs> and beyond through the middle uh, through the medieval period. Now, we were seeing an advancement in science and understanding that was suggesting a shift in worldview was necessary i.e. Galileo. Religion got involved because people turned to it as a norming cultural force in terms of worldview to stand up as champion against this newfangled thing. The Bible got dragged into it because of its surface affinity with the old worldview. Thus, the blossoming scientists and the staunch defenders of tradition were both reducing the text to its literal verbiage and starting to get into sparring matches over what the Bible says and what it doesn't say and whether that lines up with science or not. You get the idea. This isn't a foreign conversation, is it? It's almost like it's been happening for a very long time. Now, this is just the start. This really got intensified uh, during the Enlightenment period of the 1700s in reaction to the religious wars of the 1600s uh, Europe was pretty much done <laughs> culturally speaking uh, with religion as a dominant force now again that's a gross simplification um, but this was a time when science and human reason and this shift in worldview actually started winning culturally speaking these things take a lot of time in, on such a big scale, and ideas take a while to disseminate. And 200 years is actually quite a remarkable turnaround. All of this kind of culminated with the last big battlefield of Charles Darwin and his scientific theory of the evolution of species. The curious thing is that proponents of this myth today generally assume that a literal reading has always been the thing when in reality... It's a thing only as a reaction to this large-scale shift in human perspective about how the world works. Curiously, these very same people are wholly a part of this new worldview that took over. Um, it's literally impossible for them to espouse the old worldview. That isn't how things work. We know that now, and you can't undo what's happened historically. Evidence of this can be seen in their mimicking the reductionism of the text to its literal components as their conversation partners tend to. For example, let's say there's a critic of the Bible uh, who says this passage says that the sun was stopped in the sky for a whole battle. If that happened, even for a fraction of a second, we would all die. <laughs> Very true. Uh, just, you know, 
do physics. But the, you know, the defender's response to that is, of course it actually happened. God just kept us from all dying. God can do that. Duh. Now, what's happening here is instead of talking about the meaning of the text and what the text is trying to say, we're reducing it to its components, uh, to the words on the page and what the words are saying. Now, this may sound like I'm drawing a very fine line, and maybe I am, but when it comes to the Bible, there's a lot being said and communicated that goes beyond just the surface of the text. Um, let's run through a couple examples. I think that's going to be helpful at this point. Um, let's start off with some wisdom sayings. Proverbs uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart and tie them around your neck. Now, a literal reading of this would be uh, write down what your father and mother expect of you and tie those expectations with twine, thread, what have you, around your chest and neck. If you can find a way to do it once and have it around both your chest and neck, bravo. Maybe a different literal reading that isn't quite on the, so on the nose would be always obey your father and mother, period. They're older than you. They're wiser than you. They know what's best for you different way of understanding this, a non-literal approach would be don't disregard what your parents say out of hand. Ponder what they say. Meditate on them. You may find wisdom you didn't expect. Or maybe study and keep close the commands and laws that your parents obey, i.e. the law of God, for such a path leads to wisdom. Or consider Proverbs 18.20. With the fruit of a person's mouth, his stomach will be satisfied. He'll be satisfied with the product of his lips. A literal reading of this would be, your mouth has the ability to produce fruit that you can eat and satisfy your hunger with. Whereas a non-literal reading uh, would be, what you dole out with your tongue is what you're going to get back. If you give insults and bad advice, thus you will get. If you give insincere flattery, thus you will get. If you counsel humility and offer sincere praise, thus you will receive. Poetry. There's a lot of poetry in the Bible. Um, a very large chunk of it is actually poetry. <laughs> uh, let's start with some of uh, one of the favorites, uh, Song of Solomon, also called the Song of Songs. Um, chapter 2, starting with verse 8. Listen, my beloved, behold, he is coming, leaping on the mountains, jumping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he is standing behind our wall. He is looking through the windows. He is peering through the lattice. Now, a literal reading of this would be, uh, this woman's lover is a creepy deer person. A non-literal reading would be she is exchanging poetic banter with her lover as they play with imagery about deer and love and approaching each other to inquire about a night of copulation. Trust me, read the context. That, that, that's very much what's going on. <laughs> um, Psalm 88, 
1 through 5. Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and by night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul has had enough troubles, and my life has approached Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength, abandoned among the dead. Like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you no longer remember, and they are cut off from your hand. Literal interpretation. The psalmist is dead and separated from God, already in his grave, yet somehow still praying. Non-literal interpretation, because, you know, poetry. Uh, the psalmist feels like death and as if they are separated from God in a very permanent sense and is asking to be restored. Okay, you get the idea. Those are all kind of obvious uh, obvious examples. Uh, let's take something a little bit more complex. Um, we're, we're not going to go with Joshua and the sun standing still in the sky, uh, but let's go with a parable of Jesus um, from Luke chapter 16, starting with verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, enjoying himself in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed from the scraps which fell from the rich man's table. Not only that, the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it happened that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's arms, and the rich man died and was buried also. And in Hades, he raised his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus in his arms. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set so that those who want to go over from here to you will not be able, nor will any people cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I request of you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment as well. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now, a lot of um, a lot of theology around heaven and hell has been constructed on <laughs> this parable, and often this is used as a proof uh, for the existence of heaven and hell, um, and for this weird sort of spectator situation uh, of the people of heaven viewing the torment of the people in hell across a great chasm, etc., etc. Um, I'm sure. Some of you were taught something similar to that uh, growing up. Now, 
I'm going to give you a little bit of a different interpretation of this. All told, if this is literally proof of heaven and hell, then it also says that the wealthy are going to burn and the poor get into heaven. But let's pretend that it isn't for a second. What is the message of the parable? Lazarus is named while the rich man is not, giving him a significance in the story that the rich man does not have, possibly indicating the stature and importance of those that we see suffering without the basic necessities of life for us. The rich man is suffering after life because he sought only his own comfort, not even throwing the dregs of what he had to those in need when he could have shared the good things he had been given with his neighbor, Lazarus. And since parables have layers of meaning, we could also say that uh, this says something about who God holds in esteem in life, or who God sides with when push comes to shove. Now, we could go through many, many, many more examples, and we could talk about this well, I could talk about this until I was blue in the face, but that would make this a ridiculously longer episode than it needed to be. I'm going to look at our parable of the rich man and Lazarus from, uh, from just before, from two different pre-Renaissance ways of interpreting the Bible. Now, I'm doing this because I want to illustrate that reading the Bible literally, literally, hasn't been the thing for quite a while, quite a long time. Um, this is relatively new in the life of the text um, and really is this response reaction to uh, this huge shift in worldview, um, this prioritization of facts and reason and being able to logic your way to truth and answers, not that you can't, um, but the insistence that it's the only way to truth and answers might give some of us pause. Um, anyway, I digress. Let's, uh, let's look at these earlier examples. This uh, first example that I'm gonna give is what we will call uh, Midrash. Uh, this is an ancient Jewish approach that is still in wide practice today, and I'm going to do a terrible job explaining it, so if we have Jewish listeners, please forgive me ahead of time. The core mechanic of interpretation here is to realize that texts do not speak in isolation. They are a part of a larger conversation. They are in dialogue with other texts, just as we are in dialogue with each other, and just as we are in dialogue with the text. Midrash looks to other texts for guidance in interpretation, and it brings multiple texts together to dialogue and allows, that allows the interpretation to arise out of that conversation. So, with our parable of the rich man and Lazarus, what I did above was a form of midrash when I was started talking about how the passage is 
describing a rich man's hoarding of his own wealth when he could have shared it with Lazarus, that they both could flourish and be comfortable with what they needed while alive. I brought the parable into conversation with both Jesus's command to love our neighbor as ourselves and his teachings from the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25, which talk about those uh, that take care of those in need, take care of Christ himself, and those that reject or neglect them, neglect Christ himself. You can see how these passages, uh, when brought into conversation with this passage of the rich man and Lazarus, re really start highlighting certain elements of it. Um, and they've set guidelines on what the interpretation is and can be, especially since the parable of the sheep and the goats has to do with this situation of judgment and separating, uh, again, people that are going to spend, uh, it's another parable about people that are going to spend eternity with, uh, with Christ in the kingdom of heaven and people that will, you know, burn in flames. Yay. Um, I, I, I'm using the word parable very specifically, and we're going to talk more about genre uh, <laughs> going uh, going forward um, in, in one of our coming episodes. But uh, again, you bringing these into conversation is a natural thing. They are talking about similar subjects. They uh, and they ultimately, when you have them talk with each other, are coming to similar conclusions and trying to say similar things. Um, they're just doing it in some different ways. Clear as mud? Delightful. I should also note um, that this Midrashic form of interpretation uh, would have been the type, is the type of interpretation that we see Jesus and the disciples using in the New Testament more often than not. A lot of, time, a lot of the time they are using it a bit differently than I described above, though. You see, lived experience is a type of text, too, that can be brought into conversation and co-interpreted with the texts of the Bible. Uh, as the disciples were trying to make sense of who Jesus was, they frequently utilized texts in a way that seemed to us to be out of context, uh, but were fully midrashic in that the texts took on new meaning in light of their lived experiences. And that was totally normal and okay and totally not literal readings or interpretations. Okay, uh, the, I wanted to give one other example, um, and this is going to be an example of how many medieval interpreters saw the text. For them, there were three layers uh, to every text. Well, at least. <laughs> we're going to work with the, the greatest common denominator here. Um, there are all kinds of theories of how many layers of meaning there were in each text. As great as 12, um, uh, as few as 3. Uh, but we're going to focus on this 3, uh, which is every text has a flesh, a soul, and a spirit. The flesh of the text is the literal meaning and the literal reading, what, what it is actually saying in plain speak. And in the medieval period, this was the least important meaning of the text. I'm going to say that again. 
the flesh of the text was the literal meaning of the text, and this was the least important. <laughs> Whoa. Um, we're instead, not that it isn't important, it's the least important. The soul of the text was the moral teaching of the text. And the spirit of the text was what it taught us about God or Jesus. Okay, so for the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the, the flesh of the text is the story itself. And you might say that the flesh of the text is this uh, picture of Abraham's bosom and Hades, um, these, this kind of bifurcation of places where people go after they after they die, um, a place of comfort versus a place of torment and discomfort. Uh, the soul of the, uh, the soul of it is the call to share our blessings with our neighbors, because that's really what the passage is saying, right? The passage is saying, look, <laughs> uh, this guy lived in splendor while well, uh, Lazarus just chilled on his front porch begging um, for, just for scraps. And I mean, heck, even the dogs took care of him in their way. Uh, but this rich man didn't really pay him much heed in life. Uh, it is meaningless to live in splendor if we are neglecting our neighbor's flourishing as well. Okay. So that's the soul, the moral teaching of the text, the call to action, if you will. And then the spirit of the text, what it teaches us about God, is that God is generous and shares abundantly the blessings in their possession, seeking and desiring the flourishing of all. And we can say that pretty confidently because of what the text is calling us to do on the moral level. We just extrapolate that out. Um to God. So even there, you see, this is a, a way of engaging the text that is totally different um, than what our myth would uh, call us to do. And I think it actually gets us to a much more meaningful interpretation. All right. So there you have it. There, there are some ways uh, to read the Bible other than reading it literally. Uh, and reading the Bible literally is relatively new as an espoused method of reading the text. And we've worked through a few passages uh, to prove it, not to mention grossly simplified a lot of the last 500 years of history. Please forgive me. Um, <laughs> if you have questions or if you have other passages that you would like to be interpreted in a non-literal fashion, uh, drop them in the comments. Uh, thanks for joining me this week. I really do look forward to our chat next week on The Bible Less Traveled. Grace and peace, my friends. And until then... <laughs>